bless you all today. Please take out your Bibles and open them with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 14. I try not to sing out loud a whole lot for two reasons. One, I don't want to distract everybody around me, but two, because I tried to save my voice for what I'm about to do now, but this morning I just couldn't help it. <laughs> so <clears throat> Romans 14, we've been talking as we've been studying through the book of Romans, again, Paul writing to this, the church that was in Rome. And in chapter 12, we talked about, again, the first 11 chapters, talking about the desperate need for every living human being to, for salvation. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and we, we desperately need a Savior. None of us could save ourselves. And there's only one way to a right relationship with God, a restored relationship with God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, his finished work on our behalf. 11 chapters, Paul laid that all out for us. And then starting in chapter 12, started talking about, okay, so now, therefore, because of this fact, as born-again believers, our lives should reflect that. Our lives should show that, that we have received this free gift and, and that we live for our risen king. And we've looked through this, and there's been this common thing that has woven its way through all of it, and that is that one word that should define all of us, right? And that's love, agape love, not not anything that can be manufactured within us, that supernatural, selfless love that only comes from God, who he himself is love. And it's only because he first loved us that we are able to return love to him and to love one another as we are called. And we see that through chapters 12 and 13 as we've been studying since then this, this theme of love and how we are to love. And that theme continues today as we get into chapter 14, even though the word love is only mentioned one time in the whole chapter. Guys, it's all about love. And so let's, let's continue our study in Romans. We begin today chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, we read these first five verses, and he's talking about eating and not eating and observing one day and observing all days the same. And it can be a little confusing, again, in the day that we live in and living here in America. So I think a little context is extremely important. Remember, Paul is writing to the early church in Rome. And the church was made up at that time of two very distinct groups of people. One, Gentiles who came from an absolutely pagan background where pretty much anything went. Kind of went with the, the slogan, hey, if it feels good, do it. There's a God for that and you can worship him over here. 
and feeding the flesh, doing anything that you wanted. And they were, they were born again coming out of that background and, and they were struggling learning self-control, learning restraint, learning order. Because the way they had come from this, again, back, anything goes. Well, the other group of people that were a part of the early church were Jewish people who came from a background of very strict rules when it came to, to pretty much how you conduct your life and everything, including what you ate, when you worshiped, how you did these types of things. So they're coming into this, this, the body of Christ now, coming from a, a learning grace, learning freedom, the freedoms that we have in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote to the, the church in Colossae, speaking of the, the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws, he said this in chapter two of Colossians, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are mere shadows of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul points out very clearly that the, the laws that were placed back then and given to the Jewish people specifically when it came to dietary laws and all of the Sabbaths and the new moons and the festivals, all of those pointed to Jesus, the coming Messiah. And since Jesus has come, he's lived, he's, he's died, he's, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, he fulfilled all of those things. So no longer let anyone judge you on these matters. It's not that it, you're no longer required to uphold these things. Paul is writing this because no doubt there was a lot of division within the church as they were fighting and separating into groups. Understand this too about the early church. It wasn't like, okay, you go to church on, on Sunday and you sit down and you're worshiping and, and you don't like the style of music or you don't like what those people are talking about, so you just picked up and went to the church down the street. <laughs> Didn't have that back then. There was one body of Christ. It didn't have it like today where we could say, well, I'll just go try that church. I'll just do that church. I'll go that church. No, there was, there was one body. And Paul is saying, don't be fighting against each other. Don't be all of this type of stuff. You guys got guys to learn how to live in unity. And the bottom line, the theme that goes through this is, guys, there can be unity without uniformity. We get so hung up and caught up in a whole lot of things that, guys, quite honestly, God really doesn't care about. Now, don't get me wrong and certainly don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. It's not like, hey, hey we have freedom and everything, anything goes. No, as a matter of fact, it's important. Notice the first word of chapter 14, now. That word could also be but. He's, he's now drawing a contrast to what we just talked about last week. And if you'll remember, Paul outlined things for us in chapter 13 that are clearly sin and clearly things that have no business in the life of a believer. There are essentials that we cannot budge on. The, you, perhaps you've even heard this. I've, I've come across this several times and I came across it again this week. Somebody a long time ago said it and it just kind of flows through with the church today. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity or love. In the essentials, guys, there are certain things that are non-negotiable in the body of Christ. And Paul spent 11 chapters talking about all of that leading up to this. Again, the virgin birth, the this, this sinless life of Jesus. 
his atoning death on the cross, his bodily resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his promise of a return for his his church. Those things are non-negotiable. The deity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the triune God, the living word of God, what we hold in our hands, those things are not negotiable. Jude went to great extent, even writing a letter, he started out by saying, hey, I just wanted to write you guys and just encourage you and everything. But he says this right away at the beginning of the letter, Jude verse 3, beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Contending earnestly for the faith, the definitive article there, not just any faith, no, the faith, the faith that saves. Contend earnestly for that, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Contending earnestly for it. Guys, there is a movement across, and we, we talk about this from time to time, from within the church, things creeping into the church that have no business in the body of Christ Secular humanism, this whole idea that, yeah, okay, I know that this is what the Bible says, but, you know, we can all coexist. You've seen the bumper stickers, right? Doesn't mean that we can't live on the same planet together. Yes, we have to. That's our mission field, by the way. But we can't allow doctrines and all of that type of stuff. No, once for all, handed down to the, to the, the church, to you and I, the word of God, non-negotiables essentials. We have to be united on those things. But Paul is talking here in chapter 14 about the non-essentials, the things that the Bible doesn't talk about. Now, he mentions here, notice again, now, so he's drawing in contrast to the things we talked about last week, murder, theft, coveting, immorality, drunkenness, jealousy, gossip. Doesn't belong there. Does not belong in the body at all. But now, looking at these things, now notice he says, except the one who is weak in the faith. Now, it's important that we understand what that means, weak. Notice it says in, it says in faith, but the definitive article, the, is actually in the Greek. So weak in the faith. They are believers. They are one of us. And when he says weak in the faith, I I, I just, I'm just going to read what J. Vernon McGee said because I appreciate how he put it. Weak in the faith does not mean one who is weak in the great truths of the gospel. Again, those non-negotiables. The fact of faith, but rather it refers to the abstract quality of faith. He does not know what he should do relative to certain things. Some things are not expressly condemned in Scripture, but some believers separate themselves from these things, and if they do that, it's their business. These things should not separate believers. That's what he's talking about. And again, he's talking about questionable things. Notice verse 2. He says, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Now, several things that we get off, that doesn't mean that if you're a vegetarian, you're weak. God bless you, vegetarians. That's... That's, a, that's awesome. As a matter of fact, I love going and eating with vegetarians. More meat for me. I, 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 I'm all for that. I'm totally. 
Verse two, notice though, it is not a command to eat meat. There was only one instance in the Bible where one was commanded to eat meat. That was Peter. But it wasn't so that he would eat meat. It was so that he would understand. Jesus said, don't call unclean what I have called clean. He was sending him to the Gentiles at that time. That's, that was the whole point of that. But it's also not a prohibition on the Sabbath. That's not at all what it says. As a matter of fact, when we look at Colossians, it says no one is to act as your judge regarding food or Sabbath. That goes both ways. You know, don't judge one another no matter how we might feel about those things. That's the point. Notice the, the whole issue here in verse one is to accept the one who is different than you are. And that word accept does not mean simply tolerate. Accept means to, to bring them in to your, to your circle. Welcome them in to, to who you are, who you hang out with. Welcome them. Make them feel welcome. And notice, without an intention of trying to change their mind, trying to get them to think like you do. Because all of us, I guarantee you, if I passed it all out, we just did the anonymous test. Do you consider yourself strong in the faith or weak in the faith? 100% strong. It's the other guy that's weak. He says that we are not to look down on anyone based on their convictions. If they feel convicted about something, again, if they feel that they are, each person, the end of verse five, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. We, I, don't look down on someone because someone has a conviction. Now, the other side of that, please hear it. Paul gives it, lays it out. Both sides are to accept one another. Don't judge somebody based on their freedoms either. That's the, you get to the legalistic side of that coin. And why? Well, Paul tells us, <laughs> the end of verse three, because God has accepted him. Who am I to say you're not accepted when God has accepted him? Who are you to judge the servant of another? Now, this word judge, is, it, it appears a few times, and we're going to come back to it um, at a little bit later this morning, but passing judgment on someone, especially here when it's talking about morally neutral matters, there's certain issues that are not discussed in the Bible. And I think for the point that, that Paul is making that goes beyond these, these couple of issues, because he wrote a whole chapter about it. We're going to look at it this morning. It goes beyond eating and drinking and Sabbath days. It really goes to the heart of the matter. Who are we to judge what somebody does or why they do it? Or somebody's, try to judge somebody's heart in a matter? Somehow thinking that we have special insight into why someone does what they do or why someone says they do or act this certain way? Questioning their integrity, judging their integrity? On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Old Testament. We, we do that verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're in the book of Job. Invite you to join us if you never have. It's, it's a great study. We're in chapter th we were in chapter 13 this last week, and Job responding to his friends who, who are judging based on what they think. And they continually are calling him out saying, there must be sin in your life. There must be. This is an integrity issue, Job. Your integrity is a question. And Job keeps coming back saying, guys, that's not it. And he says this in Job chapter 13, beginning in verse 7. And this is a challenge for anyone who has that judgmental attitude. 
Will you speak what is unjust for God and speak what is deceitful for him? Will you show partiality for him? Partiality means to judge based on external circumstances. Are you going to do that for God? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he examines you? The answer is no. Or will you deceive him as one deceives a man? Guys, bottom line, only God has the ability and the right to judge a heart. Let him deal with it. Notice he said, it's before his master that he will stand or fall. And notice it says he will be able, he is able to make him stand. Make no mistake about it. No matter how strong you think you are, you are only standing because Jesus makes you stand. Jude 24, he's he's concluding the letter. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's not you. He's not talking about you. He's talking about the Lord. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. We both, we all stand the same way. It's in Christ Jesus. We are, as Jude tells us, to contend for the faith. But guys, we need to contend without being contentious. One day, verse 5, one day, some people look at one day above another. They hold one day higher than another. Another says, hey, every day is the same for me. One day is is set aside for this. Another says, hey, you know what? I I set aside every day the same. I don't don't separate that. Again, got to be fully convinced in your own mind. And just again, just because I know the way that we all think, Fully convinced in your own mind does not mean I'm fully convinced that you're wrong. (laughs) Fully convinced in your own mind about what God is speaking to you personally about, not what he's speaking to you about somebody else about. It's interesting because we look at this and we say, okay, he's talking about eating. We don't have issues necessarily with that. That's not dividing us today. Sabbath, we're all here on Sunday. Nobody's got a big issue about that, okay? So so we could just kind of dismiss this and throw it out the window. No, you know what? It's always something. It's interesting, just, just a little while ago, that some pillars of the faith, there's two men that had churches very close to each other over in England. Joseph Parker was one. Maybe you've heard him, maybe you haven't. I guarantee you heard the other one, Charles Spurgeon. Churches very close to one another. And they were good friends most of the, for most of the time. But there was an issue that crept up because Charles Spurgeon heard that Joseph Parker went to the theater with his wife. Oh. Say it ain't so, Joe. How could a godly man go to the theater? And then, from what I've heard, again, Joseph then pointed out the fact that Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars. How could a godly man smoke cigars? As a matter of fact, D.L. Moody, and again, you, you pull this up and you read, there's several different accounts about how it actually took place, but very little argument that the disputes actually took place. D.L. Moody actually went over to visit and to, to be a part of a service there with, where Charles Spurgeon was preaching, and he was totally blown away by the message and, and totally just saw the spirit moving through this man and through the congregation, and afterwards he went into, was invited to go back and sit with, with uh, Charles Spurgeon in his office, and when he walks in the door, there's Spurgeon with his feet kicked up, smoking a big old cigar, and T.L. Moody fell backwards and, oh, what are, what are you doing? 
How can a man of God who just moved in the spirit of God like that be sitting in here smoking a cigar? And he kicked back and he goes, well, at least I have moderation because D.L. Moody was 300 plus pounds. <laughs> Spurgeon was asked, what does it mean to have moderation when you smoke cigars? He says, I never smoke more than two at a time. Judging, judging others based on, on those types of things. And guys, we, it doesn't, spiritual gifts, there is, we, we, we talk about that, we, we've shared what we believe as we move through spiritual gifts, but there's others, born again believers, that differ on their, their understanding of spiritual gifts. Eschatology, end times. Last week I shared with you, I believe that the rapture of the church, I believe scripturally it's supported very clearly that the rapture of the church will take place prior to the tribulation period. Many believers, many that I love, many that attend our church don't agree with that. They think that it's going to happen sometime during the tribulation, some even after the tribulation. <laughs> that stuff shouldn't divide us. We can have discussion about that, but it should never divide us. The great part about it is even though you're wrong, we're, we're going up together, and that's, it's awesome. But it's amazing the things that divide people, things that aren't talked about, that aren't covered in Scripture. Worship style, music, what you listen to, music. Can Christians clap during church? Well, based on what I saw earlier, some can, some can't. I... <laughs> Bottom line, guys, when it, when it comes to it, it's, it's a heart issue, but again, it, goes, it even goes beyond a heart issue. It's about who's sitting on the throne of your heart. And Paul addresses that in our next verses. Look, beginning in verse 6. He who, observes, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he give th gives thanks to God and he eats not. I'm sorry, and he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. It's all about the lordship of Jesus Christ, guys. Lord, the Greek word kurios is used 747 times in the New Testament to refer to Jesus. Lord. It's used seven times right here in the couple of verses that we just read. What does that mean? It means absolute power. It means ownership. It means control. Colossians, again, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, let the peace of Christ 
rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. He starts off by saying, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Have control of your heart. That word literally means to umpire, to, to call, to have, I guess maybe today would be a better to use, to referee, <laughs> to make the decision, to make the call, fair, foul, in, out. Whatever you do. Heard it said, and I believe it's true, guys, if he isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. We don't get to pick and choose the parts that he's in control of and the parts that we're in control of. As Christians, we need to give him complete control. That means he calls the shots in everything. What we do with our time. He needs to be Lord of our relationships. He needs to be Lord of our finances. And specifically, Romans chapter 14, he needs to be Lord of our attitude. He needs to be in charge of how we treat one another, how we react to one another, how we respond to things. Forgiving one another. Going out of our way to bless one another. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, when does Jesus become Lord? Trick question. <laughs> he always has been. He always will be. He's never stopped being Lord. The, the bottom line, though, when it comes to each of us as individuals, is when will we submit to his lordship? And really, there's two choices. We can wait till the day that is outlined here in verse 11 that Paul references in the book of Philippians. The day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord in Christ. That day is coming. But if you wait until that day, you will stand in judgment at the great white throne judgment. It's outlined for us in Revelation chapter 20. The great white throne judgment where the book of your life will be opened up before a holy and perfect God. And he will judge every action, every word. Every thought, every intent behind every action that you ever had, and it will be judged perfectly. And please don't think that you can develop a great defense team to come alongside you. Because none of us, I guarantee you, none of us, I don't care from the strongest born-again believer would want their entire life, every thought, every action, every word from this past week put on the screen in front of the rest of us much less our entire life before a holy God. And it tells us that once that process is done, sentencing happens immediately and you're cast into the lake of fire forever, facing the wrath of God forever. Now, the good news is, praise God, all of us were destined for that. 
but he so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus, God himself, stepped off his throne in heaven, lived a perfect, sinless life, died in our place on the cross, took the full punishment for our sin so that we stand before him blameless because we have accepted that free gift in faith. If you make Jesus Lord of your life in this life, we don't face the great white throne judgment. As a matter of fact, it tells us in Revelation 20, our, our, we're written in a different book, the book of life. But it does tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ. We see that again here in verse 10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So what is that talking about? If we're talking the great white throne, we're not there. What judgment seat are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the Bema seat with regards to born-again believers, where we will stand, and verse 12 tells us, give an account of ourselves to God. Turn with me over just a couple of pages into 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians follows Romans. Next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul goes into some detail here about what will take place at the Bema seat as believers. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one foundation, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is there. We are justified there. But Paul is talking about what we do on that, building on that as Christians. Verse 12, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Paul speaks of our lives now being being put to that being judged. And, And our lives, our actions, the things that we do, the intentions behind our actions pass through. And what passes through, gold, precious stones, we will be rewarded for that. Again, not with salvation. Salvation is a gift, not a reward. Building on our salvation, building on that eternal life, that's what we're talking about here, getting a reward. It tells us that that there will be some that go through and there's nothing that that makes it through the fire. They're still saved, but but no, no rewards or very little reward with it. Now, what are the rewards? Guys, we don't know. We don't know what the rewards are, probably because our minds couldn't handle it. I will tell you this, the rewards will be, will be such that when we see it, we will never have wanted anything more in our entire life. When we see it, we're going to say, if I only knew, all of this other stuff that I used to think was so important, the things that I, the things that I did or, or didn't do, 
All of that is just so meaningless compared to that, and yet it'll be too late to do any more at that point. In verse 12, notice it says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Please see this and please understand this. We will not be called as character witnesses for other people. We are not going to be called in the prosecution or defense of anyone else. Yet how much time do we spend doing that now? (laughs) Give an account of himself to God. Not of our sin. Again, Jesus paid for that. But give an account of ourself. And as I was thinking on that this week, the Lord just really impressed this on me. And like I said, I am so blessed to, to be that my job is to study God's word and to drill into certain areas. And there's a lot of times where I just get, just have some great devotional time that I know it's just for me, that, that I don't share on the weekends just for time and, and other things. But I'll tell you, and if you'll allow me, how the Lord really dealt with me in this this week. And I'm not saying that that's the purpose, the reason why Paul used the words he did here, but this is how God spoke to me. That word account in verse 12 is the Greek word logos. Interesting. We're going to give a word. That word logos means word. And when I was contemplating on that, when I was thinking on that, I couldn't help but go to John chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, speaking of Jesus. Same word, logos, but capitalized in John chapter 1, speaking of Jesus. And the Lord just laid it on my heart. Verse 12 is speaking to me that when I'm standing before then, I'm going to have to give an account as to how I represented the Logos with my life. How I was like him. How I responded to situations like he did. And then I'm brought right to that whole thing. The word judge, I've talked about it, and we're going to get to it in verse 13. And when we take it in context, therefore, let us not judge one another, notice, anymore. What does that mean? (laughs) That means we judge people. In our flesh, that's what we do. And I was brought again to John's gospel when the woman who was caught in the act of adultery brought before Jesus, and he said, you who are sinless, cast the first stone. And one by one, they dropped the stones and walked away. And Jesus said to her, where are your accusers? And she looked around and she said, there's no one here to accuse me. And he said, neither do I accuse, neither do I judge you. If he's not going to judge him, who am I? If he forgave them, who am I not to forgive? Jesus called me He calls us to love as he loved. And I believe as as I look at this, guys, that's what this is all about. It's not about eating. It's not about any, all of these other things, all of the things that we get so caught up, it's all about love. And am I going to love like Jesus loved? Am I going to allow him to love that person through me? 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He he continues in in verse 13 again, therefore, because of this, guys, because we're going to give an account. 
Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if I, because of food, I'm sorry, because, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and it gives offense. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, but whatever is not from faith is sin. Again, in these verses, he continually comes back to this idea of food. But bottom line, the underlying principle is, guys, we should no longer judge one another. Instead, we should apply as much or more effort to make sure that I don't put an obstacle or a stumbling block in somebody else's way. Interesting, too, that word stumbling block. Greek word scandalon, which is where we get our word scandal. Is that how you view it? If, if your freedom to do something, to act a certain way, to say something, to do something, whatever it might be, causes someone else to stumble, do you consider that scandalous? How does God see it? Matthew chapter 18. It's interesting. I know many of you right now, when you hear Matthew 18, you think, oh, Matthew 18. I know what Matthew 18 is about. It's about discipline. It's about addressing issues. It's about dealing with, with those that have stepped out of line. It's about discipline. Interesting, that's in the middle of the chapter. Chapter 18 starts this way. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such as this child or receives one such child in my name receives me. Notice verse six, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, because of its scandal on. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. I think Jesus takes that pretty seriously. Paul starts off verse 13, I know and I'm convinced. 
But he says, you know what? It doesn't, know, it doesn't matter what I know and what I'm convinced of when it comes to these types of things. He goes on to spend the rest of the chapter saying, you know what? I know and I'm convinced, but I'm not going to stand there and say, hey, if you don't agree with it, that's your problem. Get over it. If we have that attitude, notice what he says it does. Verse 15, we are no longer walking according to love. If I stand up and say, you know what? I'm right. You're wrong. Get over it. I'm not walking in love anymore. Verse 15 says we potentially destroy a child of God. Verse 16 says that we are aiding someone even to the point of where they would be speaking blasphemy, spoken evil of. Verse 20, we tear down the work of God. Verse 23, we cause doubt, guilt, condemnation to come upon someone. Self-condemnation or the enemy being able to say, see, see, see. And we're, we're complicit in that. Placing an obstacle, a stumbling block. Guys, if we were... <laughs> If we were as determined to make sure that I don't put a stumbling block in somebody's way as I am sure that they get what's coming to them, can you imagine how different the church would be? Can you imagine how different the world would see us as they looked in? Now, again, it's not about eating. It's not about drinking. It's about the, all of this type of stuff. I do feel it's important to address, though, because I get asked this all the time. Is it okay for a Christian to have a, a glass of beer or a, a glass of wine with dinner? Is it okay in moderation? I'll tell you this. It's not okay for me. That is not a blanket statement for everyone. It's not okay for me. God, is, I am, God has convinced me and convicted me of that in my position as a pastor and I, as, as pastors and elders in the church. Those are things that I also expect of them. But I'll tell you, it, it's interesting because why? Here's why. The possibility of being a stumbling block. The possibility of, of an obstacle. A couple of years ago, Christina and I were going out to California to be a part of a pastors and wives conference that was out there. And we were on our way. We left a little later in the day, so we were still about an hour or two away from our destination in California. And it was 7, seven o'clock, both of us hungry, so we found a restaurant, pulled off, get, get sat down for dinner. The restaurant is virtually empty at this time. Chances of me seeing anyone from this church or anybody that even knew me, very small. Waiter comes over, first thing he says is like, anywhere, can I get you guys a cocktail, a glass of wine, a glass of beer? We have la-da-da-da-da, yada-da-da-da. And if I, if I wanted to, I, I completely have liberty to do that, but I don't. The word would, would, would doesn't condemn that, but God has convicted me. So I order my usual. I'll have a glass of water with lime, please. Ten minutes later or so, when he comes back, we've had conversation. He's not real busy because there's not a whole lot of other people. So we've had a lot of conversation going on. Asked what we're doing on our way to a pastor's conference, da-da-da. One of the things that we ask, can we pray for you about anything? He says, yes, would you please pray for me? I'm going into my second week of sobriety. And it's been a real struggle. What if I'd have said, you know what? <laughs> Nobody's going to know. I could have been a stumbling block for that man. He knows I'm a pastor. Hey, if it's all right for the pastor. Now, how far does that go? because I did have chocolate cake after dinner. <laughs> and if he was just entering the sex second week of his diet, uh, you know. I guess it goes back to 
the Lord Jesus needs to be the umpire of your heart. He's got to be the one, and you need to be obedient to what he says and how he says it. Guys, the kingdom of God, it tells us, 17, verse 17, it tells us it's not, it's not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness. It's about peace. It's about joy. And I've shared this before, and it just bears repeating. Joy. You want to have joy in your life? Here, easy to remember. J-O-Y. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. You live by that. We all live by that. Guys, joy unspeakable, full of glory. We need to be diligent, making every effort. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Building one another up. Turn with me real quickly. One minute. Turn with me. Colossians chapter 3. Where you were, 1 Corinthians, keep going. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, keep going. Colossians, stop. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 11, again, these are, these are verses directly preceding the verse that we talked about, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. These are the verses directly preceding this, again, speaking to us as Christians, how we are to act and embrace one another. Again, remember, the church at this time, dealing with all of these different factions, people coming from these different places, and they don't have a bunch of, like I said earlier, they don't have a bunch of other options. It's either here or it's, it's going back. <laughs> so here's how we all get along. Verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction. There's no hierarchy, nobody better than another. There's no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Patriots fans, Scythians, slaves. Free <laughs> what does your version say? Oh, barbarian. Mine says Patriots fans in the margin. I'm sorry. Barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ, notice, is all and in all. Guys, as believers, the Lord Jesus Christ is in us all. He will make us stand. He is the one who is to be the umpire of our hearts in all. So, verse 12, as those who have been chosen of God, because we are chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Notice all the loopholes. None. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, guys, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Put on love. Guys, all the things that divide us, all the things that cause problems between us, let it go. We're going to stand and we're going to have to give an account. All of us want to hear well done, right? Every one of us. We want to have that reward when we see it. We're like, that's for me. And guess what we're going to do with it? We're going to cast it at his feet. We're going, to be, we're going to give it back to him. It's all, it's, it's all about love, guys. Love for one another. 
love for, love for the world that is out there so that we're willing to go and lay down our lives to get the gospel out. Whether we live, whether we die, we do it for the Lord. Amen? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we again, we stand amazed and in awe of you. So Lord, we're having, this, we're having this discussion today. We're looking into your word and we're talking, about, we're talking about love. We're talking about agape love. And Lord, quite honestly, we can all stand here and say on our own, we can't do this. But the great part about it is, Lord, you did it first. You did it perfectly and you did it for us. You died for us so that we could be free. And now we have the freedom to live this way. We have the freedom to follow after you with all that we are. Lord, we have the freedom to give you everything. Every action, every word, every breath for you. And Lord, you call us. We, we touched on this earlier today. Lord, that's, that's the only sacrifice. That's the only response to what you did for us that makes any sense. Lord, it's all for you. You alone are worthy. Lord, what you did for us the new life that we have in you and you alone, that is, the, that is our foundation. Lord, our desire is to build on that foundation. We want to love who you love. We want to love how you love. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, you don't have that foundation set. I invite you right now to follow him, to give your life to him. There aren't a series of steps, really there's one. It's repentance. It's to turn from your sin and to turn to him. Receiving the free gift of salvation that he paid for on the cross for you. It's a free gift, but you have to receive it. And it does mean dying to yourself. It does mean turning away from the life you've been going, the direction you've been going. But I promise you, you won't regret it. You'll experience peace and joy that you've never, you never knew possible. You realize it's what you've been looking for your entire life to this point, and your creator, your God, your, the one who loved you, loves you so much he laid his own life down for you, has this gift for you. It's a matter of you just receiving it today. Just go before him in your heart and say, God, I, I'm a sinner. I need you. So I turn to you now, and I I ask that you would just wipe away my sin, take it all away, and, and give me this gift of eternal life. Fill me with your spirit. Jesus, would you sit down on the throne of my heart? I give it to you now. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are, what you've done, and Lord, we're all yours. In your name we pray.